get out your Bible, and uh, you probably know we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. I don't want to turn there just yet. Uh, I'm a, one more announcement, uh, of course, about Awake in West Houston. It's just around the corner, Awake in West Houston, and Sarah Skelton and her team of folks from around the city have packed over 5,000 of these things. Uh, We're still waiting on one more book to come in this week. It's the prayer guide that some of the pastors and leaders here in Katy put together. Those will go in this week and beginning next Sunday. Those of you who sign up to participate in Awaken West Houston can begin to pick up your packet. Inside this packet is a handful of things. I just want to show you real fast. Uh, Inside will be something just like this that says start here. And it just gives some basic instructions about Awaken West Houston, which is from March 2nd to the 31st, 30 days. We're asking God's people here in Katy to pray and fast as God leads you for those 30 days for 17 unique households. So also in this packet, you will get a list, your people to pray for. And here are 17 households right here, the Reed household, the Rodriguez household, the Crosby household. You'll get a list of 17 households to pray for. You'll also get some instructions on uh, rules regarding your list of names, some things to do with this list and some things not to do with this list, like drive over to their house and meet them, right? We don't want to do that. We don't want to uh, try to befriend them on social media or anything like that. We, we want to pray and fast for these names. So there'll be some instructions about that. You'll also, inside your bag, uh, get 17 postcards. And at the end of this time, you'll use those postcards to write to each of the people you've been praying for on the back of this sheet, tips for writing your postcards. And there will also be two little books in there. One, Revival Starts Here, a short conversation on prayer, fasting, and revival for beginners like me. I love that subtitle because I feel like I'm a beginner when it comes to this kind of stuff. And then, of course, the prayer guide will be in there as well. Sarah, this one's kind of funny. It, it got three of these things in there. I hope, I hope the rest of them didn't get three in there, but that's all right. The more the merrier. So please, if you haven't already, would encourage you, invite you to join us along with believers all over our city for Awaken West Houston at RedeemerCommunity.life. You can sign up. I read this morning from Luke 23 about the two criminals that were crucified with Jesus. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? It's a penetrating question when you think about it. Do you not even fear God? This one criminal was making a decision choice that to the other criminal seemed to give evidence this man doesn't fear God. If he feared God, he wouldn't make a choice like that. Again, it's a good question, I think, for all of us. Each and every day, you and I are faced with decisions 
on the one hand to, if you will, bow to the world, to our flesh, to the devil, and choose disobedience. And on the other hand, to trust and obey God. Multiple decisions like that every day. Am I going to disobey the Lord? Or am I going to trust Him and obey Him? And sadly, more times than we would like, we find ourselves giving into our flesh, into the allurement of the world. Satan has his way with us, and rather than trust and obey God, we find ourselves sinning against the Lord. And someone might well ask us, Mitch, do you not fear God? Does not his reality and his greatness and his glory and the fact of his coming judgment, does that not affect the decisions that you make today? Do you not fear God? Today in Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to see a story where the fear of God shows up in at least two ways. It's a story, again, about Nehemiah. It's one of those stories you read it and maybe you think, okay, that's what Nehemiah did. I guess I'm supposed to do something similar. But I've tried week in, week out. I've told you I'm trying to stay away from that. What did Nehemiah do? Let's do that. Try not to make him the hero of the story more than he's supposed to be. I think rather than look at this story and say, what did Nehemiah do? Let's do that. This little phrase, the fear of our God, is maybe meant to drive what we're to see. There's a sad reality that we read about in verses 1 to 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish Brothers, oh man, we saw last week that in chapter 3, as they began to rebuild the walls, they began to experience pressure from the outside, right? Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ammonites, and the like. These folks from the outside who were seeking to discourage them and seeking to disillusion them and seeking to frighten them so that they would stop the work on the wall. It was external. And now here in chapter 5, it's from within. A great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Verse 5. Now, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. It's our own kinsmen 
who are doing this. The Net Bible tries to help me at least understand what's going on here. The poor among the returned exiles were being exploited by their rich countrymen. Moneylenders were loaning large amounts of money and not only collecting interest on loans, which was illegal, according to Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 23, but also seizing pledges as collateral, which was allowed, Deuteronomy 24. When the debtors missed a payment, the moneylenders would seize their collateral, their fields, their vineyards, and homes. And with no other means of income, the debtors were forced to sell their children into slavery, a common practice at this time. Nehemiah himself was one of the moneylenders, we'll see in verse 10, but he insisted that seizure of collateral from Jewish from fellow Jewish countrymen was ethically wrong. So there was famine. A lot of the energy that was given to their fields was now being given to the wall, and it just led to a mess of hunger and having to mortgage fields and vineyards and even putting some children into service in order to pay debts and taxes, and it was being done by each other's own countrymen. It wasn't folks on the outside, it was folks on the inside. And I think we could quickly say that just as deadly to our discipleship, our faithfulness to following Jesus together, is not only the ridicule and the mockery and the threats of loss that come from the outside that we saw in verse chapter 4, but also a failure of love that can come from the inside. Paul writes in Galatians, don't bite and devour one another. He's writing to, to the church, don't bite and devour one another lest you be consumed by one another. He goes on to condemn outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions within the church. He would write to the Ephesians, lay aside falsehood. Apparently, even within the church, they weren't speaking truth to one another. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander Be put away from you. These are the sorts of things that can sadly happen within the body of Christ. I've quoted it before, but it's kind of fun but sad. To live above with saints we love, all that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. We rub each other the wrong way. The best of men are what? Men at best. And so, even within the body of Christ, we disappoint each other. We disagree. We don't always see eye to eye. And if we're not careful, rather than be patient with one another and long-suffering towards one another and merciful towards one another and kind towards one another that the New Testament calls us to, it can turn into outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and the like. May it not be so with us. May we walk in the Spirit and put on love. 
one of Satan's greatest strategies is what? Division. We'll look at it next week. He's got a number of strategies for us. Discouragement. He can discourage us. He can deceive us. He can distract us. He can disqualify us. He can divide us. And there's some tension going on here within the people of God. Division and outcry. And so we must be careful, as Paul would call us to as well, to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's watch Nehemiah respond to this, and we're going to see this little phrase, the fear of God, come up twice. In verse 6, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Nehemiah loved his people, and he loved his God, and he loved what God was doing in the people and through the people for the sake of Israel. And they were pushing back against the external threats and persevering through, but then this kind of inner turmoil, it made him mad. Verse 7, I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and rulers and said to them, you you know, I think we got to love this, right? What did it look like for him to consult with himself first? He's so mad. He's about to get there, but before he gets there, I I consulted with myself. I wonder if... Galatians chapter 6 might not be something like this. Remember, Paul says to you and me, brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Maybe Nehemiah took some time to look at himself first. Maybe he took some time to look at the scriptures in Leviticus and in Exodus that that spoke to what was going on here. But at least we can say he maybe took a breath or two. But then he said to them, you are exacting usury. Right? Not, not only interest, but high interest, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. So in the midst of all of the stuff going on with Israel over the last dozens of years through the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, many of the Jewish people had been taken into captivity and, and many of them... we've bought them back, we've redeemed them from the Assyrians or from the Babylonians or from whoever. Now are we having to redeem our own people from our own people? Now would you, you even sell your brothers 
that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again I said, the thing which you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I made my brothers and my servants, I'm sorry, and likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. I think Nehemiah is saying, we've been lending money, we've been lending grain, but we're not doing so at interest. So leave this off. Please get back to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Here we might say is one believer to another, calling them to repentance. What you're doing is not good. Do this instead. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The proverb says, it also says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Nehemiah is going to wound his brothers and sisters. But it's a faithful wound, calling them away from that which is not good to that which is right and noble. And in the midst of it, he said, should you not walk in the fear of of our God. Folks, he says, God is watching. God is is real and God is great and God is aware. We are to live in love with him and in submission to him and in obedience to him. And what you're doing is not good. Do you not fear God? Well, their response is wonderful. Verse 12, then they said, we will give it back and we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. This is awesome. What they were doing was not good. Nehemiah comes and says, hey, listen, what you're doing is not good. Do you not fear God? Let's obey the Lord and do this. And they heard it. Right? The Proverbs. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. They listened to the reproof. They repented of their sin and they did according to this promise. I think it's fair to say that when you and I are walking in the fear of God, that we too will be a people who walk in repentance. 
Not that we will be perfect in our obedience. But when we come to understand our sin, we will, as they, repent. J.I. Packer, years ago, wrote what he thinks true repentance looks like. Number one, you recognize that you have disobeyed and failed God, doing wrong instead of doing right. He's going to give five things here. I'm not so sure all five are exactly played out here, but, but surely they did this, huh? What you're doing is not good. And they seemingly said, we recognize that yes, we have disobeyed God. Number two, remorse at the dishonor you have done to the God you are learning to love and wanting to serve. So it's not just a recognition that I've broken a law of God, but I've broken a law of my God. The God who has not only created me, but loved me and saved me and promised himself and covenanted himself to me. I have sinned against him. So there's a recognition of the sin, but there's also the remorse for the sin against our Heavenly Father. Third, it's a request for God's pardon cleansing of conscience and help not to lapse in the same way again. So not only recognizing that I've sinned and not only remorseful that I've sinned against my God, but then asking him, requesting of him the forgiveness of those sins and his help as I go on forward to not fall in the same way again. Number four, renounce the sins in question with deliberate thought as to how to keep clear of them and live right for the future. We will give it back and we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. And then number five, make restitution to any who have suffered material loss through one's wrongdoing. Is there anyone that my sins have hurt in any particular way that I need to make restitution for. The fear of God stirs up within his people repentance from sin. That's a beautiful thing. But there's more to it here. It's not only the repentance of the people, the example of Nehemiah in verse 14. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So he's the governor for these 12 years, and in such a position, the taxes come in, and he is able to use that for food and the like, but he didn't. Verse 15, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, 
and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me and one in 10 days. All sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah presents himself here as a wonderful example, one who did not take advantage of the people, but the word is not used here, but it seems to me his love for his people. But the reason he gives is the fear of God. So we see it up in verse 9. Should you not walk in the fear of God? And here, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. The fear of God not only led to the people's wonderful repentance of their sin, but the fear of God also led to the wonderful love of Nehemiah for his people. I don't know, and I looked at least in a handful of places, how was Nehemiah able to afford all this other stuff? I mean, he goes on to say how much it took, and it was a lot. But he said, I didn't take the, the food allowance for it. I'm not so sure where he got the resources to do it. But he wasn't taking it from the people. What is the fear of God? One scholar put it like this. The common root of fear in the Old Testament, which has a threefold range of meanings. One, to be in dread or terror. Right? We we readily understand that one. Or two, to stand in awe. Or three, to revere, to respect. With the Lord as the object, fear of the Lord, it captures the tension of shrinking back in fear and drawing close in awe and adoration. Both categories of meaning appear in Exodus 20, verse 20. That verse says this, Moses said to the people, this is at Mount Sinai, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, do not fear. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So commenting on Exodus 20.20, both categories of meaning appear in Exodus 20.20 where the Lord descended upon Sinai amidst geophysical convulsions, the thunder, the lightning, and the like. Moses encouraged the Israelites to not be afraid of God striking them dead for no reason. Do not fear but inform the people that the Lord himself in such a terrifying manner, but inform the people that the Lord revealed himself in such a terrifying manner to scare them from sinning. 
God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him in you so that you do not sin. He goes on, it is expressed in reverential submission to God's will. It's the characteristic of true worship. It's the foundation for wisdom, the discipline leading to wisdom. It's expressed in hatred of evil and in the avoidance of sin. As Solomon would say, it is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. One author bridges, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's will. Another fear is best understood as reverent obedience. Although it includes worship, it does not end there. It radiates from our, out from our adoration and devotion to our everyday conduct that sees each moment as the Lord's time, each relationship as the Lord's opportunity, each duty as the Lord's command, each blessing as the Lord's gift. It's a new way of looking at life and seeing what it means, what it is meant to be when viewed from God's perspective. The fear of the Lord. Here's the way I think about it. I I don't know how much, how right I am, but it it seems to me that we get these, we, we have these two realities that as believers, I think we understand and, and maybe not always know how to, how to put together. On the one hand, we are the children of God through the gospel of Jesus. Oh man, what a blessing, right? Our God in his love and in his mercy and in his kindness has condescended to sinners like you and me. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be his children. And he sent his son into the world to live and die and rise for us. And when we were lost in our sin, he sent his Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the greatness of God, to see our sin, to see what he's done through Jesus, and we believed. And in believing, he forgives us. And in believing, he makes us his child. And we are loved by him. He is merciful towards us. He is kind towards us. He is patient towards us. We are safe. We are secure. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Through Jesus Christ, we are secure. Yes. The kindness and the mercy, and the love, and the patience of our God. And at the same time, On the other hand, at the same time, we know he is God and there is no other. He is the great and the awesome God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is the great triune God. He is the one who created all things simply by the word of his power. He created us in his image and we sinned against him and we rightly deserve his judgment 
his wrath forevermore. And he would be right if he were to doom us forever. He loves me. I'm safe. But he is the great and the awesome God. I think Peter maybe kind of puts these together. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, if you address as Father, and we do, those of us who know Christ, we are the children of God. We, he is our heavenly Father. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Conduct yourselves in fear. Reverence. Oh, respect that, that my heavenly father is also the great God. And he's not my little puppy, right? That I can just have at my side and pat on his head. The one who has saved me is the great and the wonderful and the awesome God. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's the beginning of wisdom. Here's a few things maybe for us as we think about the fear of God and maybe how to grow in it. Number one, let's begin just really with the simple reality that there is a God and I'm not him, right? That's a good place to start. That is the beginning of wisdom. There is a God and I'm not him. Secondly, I think we remind ourselves that the Bible clearly teaches that we are accountable to God. Even we who have believed and whose sins are forgiven. The Apostle Paul said in Romans or 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive con compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done. Whether good or bad. All of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Not to be judged for our sins, Christ took those. But in some way to be judged for the life that we have lived and the things that we have done. And all of that which seemingly was not done in faith and motivated by love for God, it's going to be gone. And that which will remain are those things by His grace that we have done for His glory. So begin with that simple reality, there is a God and I'm not him. Remind ourselves that we will one day stand before the judgment seat of God, even as believers, to give an account for our lives. Number three, don't turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That's a big fancy word. What does that mean? License, right? The license to do what I want. Don't turn the grace of God into that. Our God has been gracious to us. And we are forgiven. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the wrong response to that is, I'm forgiven so I can do whatever I like. 
we want to say to that kind of response, do you not fear God? That you would turn his grace into license to live as you'd like? I mentioned last week Thomas Brooks' precious remedies for Satan's devices. One of Satan's devices, according to Brooks, is by presenting God to the soul as one made up all of mercy. Hey, you can live however you want because God is all of mercy. For remedies, he says, consider that one, it is the sorest of judgments to be left to sin upon any pretense whatever. He's an old Puritan, so it's hard to understand what he means. A pretense is something you think to be true but isn't. And apparently to Brooks, the idea that that God is only a God of mercy is not true. And it is the sorest of judgments to be left to sin thinking that that is true. Well, I can sin because God is all of mercy towards me. Number two, consider that God is as just as he is merciful. So indeed, God is merciful towards you and me. He is gracious and kind and forgiving. He is our Father, but He is our great God as well, just and righteous and holy. And we will give an account to Him. Praise God, not for our sins, but we will stand before Him one day. Number three, here's another remedy. Sins against mercy will bring the greatest and sorest judgments on men. Number four, Though God's general mercy is over all his works, yet his special mercy is confined to those that are divinely qualified. Not sure what he means by that one. And number five, the saints now glorified regard God's mercy as a most powerful argument against and not for sin. They would say, yes, God is merciful, therefore don't sin. It would never say to us, God is merciful, therefore do as you would please. Let's not turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And number four, go further by filling your mind with more and more truth about the greatness, the glory, and the severity of God. Maybe read the Bible with a view towards this question. What does this teach me about God? That's a great way to read the Bible. As you read a chapter or a paragraph to think, what what did I just learn about? What does this passage teach me about God? And if your vision and my vision of God gets smaller the more we read the Bible, we're not doing it right. Right? As we read the Bible and ask the question, what does this teach me about God? God gets greater and greater and greater and greater and greater. And we come to rightly, appropriately, fear the Lord, respect Him, in awe of Him. And in so doing, maybe worship Him, trust Him, and obey Him. I had a closing remark on my earlier sets of notes And I forgot to put it in this new set of notes. And it was good, and I can't remember what it was. Let's pray. Lord, help us have a good 
fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that the criminal was asking the other criminal, don't you have it? Nehemiah here, do you not fear God? Do you not walk in the fear of our God? I did so because of the fear of God. Lord, help us to love you. I think it's Deuteronomy 6. Just within a few verses of each other. Fear the Lord. Love the Lord. Lord, help us put those together in our own hearts, in our own minds. And thank you so very, very much for Christ. Whom you sent to redeem us by the blood of the Lamb. Father, if there's any here today who are banking on themselves at the judgment seat rather than banking all on Christ. They're trusting in themselves, their goodness, their wisdom, their power, their whatever to be their ticket. Help them to see that that is futile and that the way you have provided is of your grace through your son, Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. That in him is found the forgiveness of sins and in him is found new life eternal life. Help them turn even right now to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. We'll pray this in his name. Amen.